welcome back to episode 12. I'm your host, Dan Steers from Double Dan Horsemanship, and I'm in the studio all by myself. Unfortunately, Kim Hagen couldn't make it here today to do our recording. So Dan James and myself will be going through the start of 2012, which will cover James leaving Australia with Amelia and Apollo and flying overseas and making his way across to the US. Also, his preparation for Road to the Horse and and ultimately the competition where he competed alongside Guy McLean in an international version of Road to the Horse, the first ever for this format, and we'll get into that and more in this episode. But before we get there, I'm going to see if I can get Kim Hagen on the line just to catch up with Kim and also see if we can play a quick round of Craig's World. Stay tuned. Guess who's back? Back again. Kim Hagen's back. Tell a friend. Guess who's back? 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 Kim Hagen, you there, buddy? That's right. I'm back, baby. Yeah. I was just explaining to- Good, mate. Good. I was just explaining to the listeners that uh, unfortunately I don't have you here in the studio and I'm a little bit lonely, so we'll get you on the line. On the scene, scene, I'm down at the AFL field ready to record as the goals come in. Awesome. So the boys started yet? No, we've got another little half hour warm up and um, speed forecast is the coldest day of the year um, here in uh, sunny Tamworth uh, and, and across the East Coast to Australia. Uh, I've got to say, a bit overstated. It's, it's not that cold here at the moment and there's no wind, so it's, it's just it's prime football weather. It's been uh, it's been pretty miserable here the last week or so um, at home. It's been pretty tough going trying to get inspired to, to work young horses, to be honest. So I'm looking yeah. forward to some warmer weather and, and to, for you to say that it's prime uh, AFL conditions, I don't know if I'd go that far. <laughs> it's not quite that... Uh, what do they call it the last weekend in September? Well, are you going to be watching from the car? Or are you going to actually get out of the car and, and barrack from the oh, no, I've showed some of the skills as one of the most masterful goal umpires that you've ever seen last week. Did you uh, that, even had, oh, animated as an understatement. It was a little bit of, um, uh, you would have seen it in the uh, Happy Gilmore movies uh, where he had the uh, the golf, um, the little stick that goes in the hole and he was going around flogging himself and there was a bit of that going on. Yeah, right. So you're not going to get a call up for the AFL anytime soon by no, the sounds of that. Well, I actually saw some of the supporters from the opposition at a different event midweek and they were regaling the stories of how good my flag work was. They were just looking forward to me maybe running some coaching clinics um, inspiring some of the kids to get involved, you know. I think I've done enough. Well, I'll put the challenge out there so we can put it on our socials. See if you can get Mrs. Kim to record you just when you do one of your bests. Yeah, right. And we'll flick it up on <laughs> on on the socials just to give everybody a bit of a picture on on what they yeah. can. Uh, oh, it was classy. Imagine. It was classy. Yeah, I bet it yeah. is. So, what else you've been up to? It's been uh, a few weeks since we've uh, done a podcast. What have you been up to? Yeah, getting busy. Breeding season here in Australia for those of the American listeners is kicking off. In 
proper form in the next week or two. We've actually already AI'd a couple and we'll be flushing some embryos on Tuesday in about three days' time. Um, so I've been up one end or the other of a horse pretty solidly, um, doing teeth and, and repro work and um, and also fencing and stuff and just last-minute stuff to get ready for the breeding season. I better pull my finger up. We haven't done any scans on any of our mares and I've got a few to embryo this year, so that's just a good reminder. We, yeah. won't, we won't keep you too long because I know you've got uh, to get out there and uh, <laughs> show my form. barrack for the boys. Um, let me see if I can get coordinated enough to get Craig on the line. Kim, are you ready for Craig's world? Mate, I'm born ready, fool. Here we go. Craig's world. Craig's world. Craig's world. Craig's world. Craig, you there, buddy? Yes. Wow. Hello, gentlemen. How are we all? This ah, is- the Master of Ceremonies has arrived. How are you, Craig? <laughs> good, mate. How are you? Yeah, good. I'm primed. Well, uh, good. Like, you know, I don't want to see. It's good not to be in the studio because I, I just hate seeing um, Daniel crying. Well, it is. <laughs> it is. It is a first for the Double Dam podcast. We've actually got a phone hookup where we've got both Craig and Kim on the line, and here, lonely in the studio, is myself, Dan Steers. So it is Kim's turn to uh, to start. Are you ready to get straight into it? I'm ready. All right, you. All right, Kim. So we're going to try to level this up, mate. You've got. You've got the advantage. Make it good. All right. Feeling a lot of pressure here, but that's okay. I'll rise to that. Um, is the mystery person male? Yes. Good start. Good start. I'm all over you, Daniel. Uh, is the mystery person in the sporting industry? Yes. <laughs> a resounding yes. baby. Yeah. <laughs> that's, not uh, their, that's not their number one gig. Oh. Okay. So is the mystery person also um, in the entertainment industry? Yes. More of a yes. More of a yes. Okay. Okay. Is the mystery person uh, involved with film? Not directly. Oh. No. Okay. So they're in the entertainment, more known for that than their sport. Then they do play a little bit of sport. This is a crazy one. We don't want to sit here and listen to your thinking. Okay. While you take the time. (laughs) Oh, no. Okay. Okay. Draw it out. Have extra time. Is it it a musician? No. Okay. Uh, so we're in the entertainment industry. We're not involved with films. This is what I'm going to do for you now, Sid. Uh, and we're not a musician. Um, are we a comedian? No, no. Oh, not very entertaining, really, are they? No. So, so I'm thinking, are they okay? So are they known for being on television? No. Oh my god! It's <laughs> <laughs> good uh, round yet. I'll, t- I'll, t- I'll tell you, Kim. There was a question that you've thrown out that you used to ask me every week. Oh, okay, Kim. I know. I'm not. I don't know who it is, but I know what he means. Oh, where do you do? Do you want to tell me? Do you want to pass? Uh, yeah, I'll pass. I'll let you go with this question. Okay. So, are they in the horse industry? Yes. Right. Um, the male in the horse industry can play sport, but not famous for their sport. So, so when you say sport, just to clarify. Well, I considered the horse industry a sport. Oh, okay. That was what I was going to get to. So you're saying that they, okay. It is, yes. So do they do entertainment with their horses? Yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> We're going to start guessing ourselves, aren't we? Uh, well, that's uh, <laughs> Yes. It's a matter of who to choose, Daniel. Who yeah. to choose? <laughs> is, um, 
<laughs> is the person, um, is it Kim Hagen? No, it is not. Oh. I would have been really sad if you'd stolen that from me. <laughs> <laughs> um, wow. Is it Daniel Sears? No. Is it a young musician. <laughs> is it Dan James? <laughs> it's not Dan James, no. Oh, okay. So now we've got to get out the side of the yeah, box. Yeah, so you've eliminated all of the horsey people yeah. that I know. That's right. So, oh, so you've done a bit oh, of wow. research, have you? Yeah. All right. Let's get back into it, Kim. Go. All right. This is uh, be too hard. Okay. Is the mystery person Australian? Yes. Oh, it's, it's thinned it out very quickly. Uh, is the mystery person over the age of 40? Yes. Uh, it's like it's just thins it uh, are they an educator in the horse industry? He might not know that. Hmm. Yeah, he might not, but he's looking at his website. <laughs> <laughs> he's got a website. <laughs> <laughs> he's got he's got a he's got a website. Oh I think you said unknown. You have to guess, Kim, so you get another another question. All right. It's it's only down to two people. Oh, is it? I think so. Wow. Then you better not not give this up. Uh, Froggy, I'm dead set blank. Um, Is the mystery person uh, Brett Parbury? No. No, come on, mate. That was weak. I know, but... You're weak. <laughs> he's, he's better. I'll just put it this way: he's better known for his sport than his entertainment. If it's Brett Parbury, this guy's for his entertainment. So it's down to two people I can think of, right? So I, I don't know whether I just ask the, ask who they are because the questions are going to just lead that way or the other. So my first one will be: Is it Heath Harris? No. Okay. Okay, Kim. And 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 the advantage for you, Dan, of course, there is your story that I might know involving you and this person. Oh, okay. even though I don't directly know this person. Oh, that throws me off. So did we say sport was their primary or the entertainment? No, entertainment is definitely their primary. And they're Australian? Yes. That's not Heath Harris and they're over the age of 40 and there's a story. Is it that magician that was down at Equitana with the boys? No, because he's not a horse person. Oh, I don't know if he rides horses or not, but <laughs> primarily he's definitely known for riding horses. Okay, so that's a no. Okay. Is it Guy McLean? It's Guy McLean. Oh, and, and he's going to feature in this episode. Really? I didn't even know that. Look at that. Wow. I can't believe you didn't get Do you know that, what the story is, Dan? Do you know what the link is? Is it Road to the Horse? What's the link? No. It was Equitana. Is he a musician? Uh, yes. Yeah, he, well, a poet. Uh, for- well, Poet, exactly. But when did we get to musician? I'm, I'm claiming, I'm claiming uh, fault here. Oh, sorry. You're saying, well, he's not a musician. Just because you can play an instrument, does that make you a musician? No, he's not a musician. Yeah, you got to be able to play a musician. But Craig said no to musician. Yeah, that's why he's arguing. Oh, no. I, no, I, no, I thought you said yes to musician. No, he said no. No, so, no, I said no to musician. Think, oh, okay. Sorry. You'll have to listen back to the podcast, <laughs> mate. You can't get us. <laughs> it's the replay. I'm crumpled. I'm crumpled in a hump. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's three, horrible. It's three to one now. Okay, I'm going for double double points next round. What um? What about what? What what's the story? So, do you remember uh, Equitana? Um, Anita was helping you. Anita is our sister, helping you with your merchandise. Yes. And you were doing a roaring trade, right? Anita wanted to borrow by staff discount a vest, a double Dan horsemanship vest. Right. And you wouldn't sell her one cheap because you were doing a roaring charade. Yeah. So she said, fine, I'm going to go and get one of Guy McLean's. <laughs> and, and off she went and very quickly you changed your mind. No, 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 no. I can't have my sister wearing that. Here, here's your best. Enjoy. Well, there's, there's, it's, I think that's partial truth because Guy McLean wasn't actually- <laughs> 
Guy McLean wasn't actually at that event, so um, he was in the States, but that the rest of the story was true. Anita wanted a vest and I was going to give her a vest, but just not one from the booth because I knew I was going to sell that one. So I said, I'll get her one after the show. She wasn't quite happy with that. She wanted one right there and then, and she was helping. So they do call me Pinch as a nickname here on the farm. <laughs> Give your sister a vest. Go and send her a cap and not one of Bruce Odell's. I did, I did, I did give her a vest, Kim. So, and she's got plenty of hats and merchandise. She's got more merchandise than I do when it comes to the you double. Send her a jacket, to make her feel better. Well, I'm actually wearing one of one of my jackets right at the moment. But uh, anyway, there we go. So, what's going to happen next week? Are we going to have another round next week? Uh, no, that'll be it. We're gonna we're gonna do something different. Oh, so I'm the champ. Ooh, I have. I have a plan. You're the champ. You've done it, but that was the oh, way the game was set up, remember? <laughs> oh, no. I feel like I've let the quarters down. You don't even get I went horsey for you this week, mate. I oh, know. Thanks, mate. I don't know that that was necessarily, even though I do know Guy McLean, um, it was, I don't know that was necessarily to my advantage going to the horse arena. I think he thought. It was either going to be Guy McLean or Chris Brown, but I just thought, come on. Oh, he's got me. Yeah, yeah. No, we needed Guy McLean over. <laughs> over a steel jaw. <laughs> <laughs> of a square jaw. Can't believe him. Rightio. Well, you guys heard it here first. Dan Steers is the 2020, whatever we're going to call this game, Craig's Great World girl. champion. So we, if, if congratulations. I was, uh, yeah. Good on you. Thank you. Really thank you. Thank you. you Come said on. You were alone in your studio today. Thank you, guys. It's all right. Thank you. Thank you. All right. I just want to <laughs> thank my mum. If it wasn't for her, I wouldn't be here today. <laughs> you can thank your sister too, because she gave you that um, gave me the idea for that one this week. Mm. Uh, yeah. Thanks, Anita. All right, Perfect. guys. Well, it was good to have you <laughs> on our first ever phone call crossover. We're going to get back to our episode twelve, where we're covering two thousand and twelve, where Dan James takes his horses across to the states. So stay tuned. Thanks for having me, guys. See you, Thanks, Craig. Catch you, mate. See ya. We've got Dan James on the line. You there, Dan? Yeah, mate. How are you? Good. Good to have you. We've missed you for the last episode and it's been a while. I think it might have been a month or so since we've had you on the podcast. What have you been up to? I didn't even know that you guys had done a couple of episodes. Uh, Not a couple. We've, um, done, we've done one. We've, okay. That makes me feel a little bit better. Um, yeah, mate. Um, been been actually staying pretty busy. Um, you know, even though that we've got the whole corona thing going on, I mean, obviously we're still doing all the the correct protocols, but um, actually been staying pretty busy with the Liberty Clinic. Um, so that uh, kept us out. We've done some stuff in Texas and Colorado and, uh, and of course, at home in Kentucky. That's awesome. And I saw some footage of, I believe, Applejack. He's looking like he's going really well. Oh, mate, what a – he's like freak. He makes you feel like that he can be a horse trainer. Like um, he's probably one of the most teachable horses that I've come across. Um, very, very clever horse. Wow, I look forward to seeing him for real life, as my kids would say when they're asking if something something's real or not. Um, other other question. <laughs> real life, I like that. Yeah, they always say, for real life. Um, that's, their, that's their catchphrase. Um, are you, we've also, we're talking off air and, and you're on a little bit of a family holiday. Where are you? Uh, yeah, mate, we've come down to Dathan, Florida. And, um, you know, when I think Florida, I think of, you know, really the big peninsula part. Um, and there's that bloody frog again, um, barking in the background. Um, we are... Uh, that's annoying, isn't it? Yeah, for the listeners, um, James is right out in the nature reserve there. He's got some bloody tree frog uh, sounding like it's a little <laughs> yeah. yap yap dog. But uh, I just think that just adds to the ambience, the effect. 
Well, it's a pretty every time I go to speak to Frogs, uh, things he can do a better job. Let's see if I can track him down and relocate him. Um, yeah, it's not like when you think of like Florida, it's not like down in the peninsula. It's like quite a quite a ways. Like from where you and I did the filming um, years ago for the DVDs in Florida, we're probably five or six hours from there, northwest. Rightio, yep, so, I get you. Um, so we're kind of more in the like we're on that Gulf of Mexico um, side, more kind of closer to the Panhandle. Yeah, awesome. Uh, which I could be there. We uh, we did our own little family vacay only last week. It already seems like a eternity ago. We got away for three days with the family, which is the first break um, that we've had, I guess, post, well, it's not really post-coronavirus and during the coronavirus pandemic. So um, it was good to get away for a few days down there. But um, we've been back home and, and life as usual, so to speak, as far as horses back well, in work. I'm always I'm always impressed that, that you guys have always been disciplined and dedicated into uh, taking that family time. I think it's something that... Um, um, I certainly, you know, need to work a bit better at. Like now that I've gotten down here away from everything going on, I'm, you know, I could settle in and enjoy this uh, quite well. But this, this for us is actually the first one that we've ever done. Yeah, which is which is unbelievable. And, and obviously with the two kids, it does make it tough and it will get easier and easier because obviously Jesse's only still just a little tacker and, and you stay pretty close to home um, at the start and, and you'll start getting out and about. But it's, it is tough when you run your own business. It's hard to get away at the best of times. But then to actually unwind when you're away and this is probably giving a bit of the listeners an insight look into our own personal lives and 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 also if, if they don't run a business they, they might not understand how it quite works but when you get away it's also hard to switch your mind off i know that i can do it pretty good for a few days but as i get closer to knowing that i'm going home i start getting a little bit anxious and itchy to get back into the swing of things you start thinking about all the stuff you should be doing which is which is a hard thing to switch yourself off from have you suffered any of that while you've been away um you know yesterday when we first when we first got here we had a few things at the farm go sideways um unexpectedly um uh you know nothing nothing major but just little uh incidents that you you know then you're then trying to sort of put out more fires and that on um, you know, yeah, to try to help manage it while while you're away. But I, I got to say, and you'll be able to relate to this. Anybody that has a small business, I guess, when you go away, so much of it of your relaxation, I think, also depends on the people that you have at home helping you take care of horses and um, you know keep the you know the show on the road. So we're fortunate enough to have a, a really great crew being led up by Patrick at home right now. So that makes a big difference. Yep, for sure. Yep, absolutely. And and we can vouch for that here at home. Moving forward we can't talk about our holidays for too long we've got to move on we've got uh, episode 12 which is a big year we're covering the 2012 era which is really basically when uh, when you take Amelia and Apollo over to the states and then also prepare for road to the horse and that's the international competition there's two little stories I wanted to start with before we even get there there's there's two things that, that made me laugh about 2012 well actually one thing that made me laugh about 2012 and one thing probably horrified me about 2012 and you were there for both of them and you're probably wondering right now what the hell I'm talking about. Yeah. One, yeah. Of, one of the funny stories for the start of 2012, which which over here, um, you know, obviously is the summertime, so it's it's quite warm. And that's the, that's the time that we, that, that we had both Donald and the Greek god himself, Alex Biffin, living with us and, uh, and or, or at least staying with us. Um, Alex was staying with us, but, um, but, uh, Donald was certainly living with us and there's 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 a story about us taking them on the road but but just to paint the picture I remember when we came home from somewhere and those boys would get around you know without a top on pretty much all the time you know flexing their muscles and and uh, 
uh, Donald looks like a baby version of, of uh, a Greek god, Alex. But the two of them would get around. And I remember coming home with the girls one day and um, and Alex was in the kitchen, but he's just wearing his jocks, just wearing his undies. And the girls, the girls' drawer just dropped. I think they dragged it into the uh, into the house. And in a way, he says, oh, oh sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll go put on something, you know, more appropriate. And he leaves and he comes back, not with a shirt on, with these tiny, tiny shorts that basically just look like small boxer shorts. Not much more covering him than what he originally went away in. And I was just like, are you for real? That's you covering up? And and the girls weren't worried about it at all. They were they were pretty, it was, yeah, they, they were pretty happy with, um, with having those two boys around. And it leads me on to them when we went away. We went away and did a show and it's a pretty cool show. We went down there for Mooney Valley races and it was supposed to be Black Caviar's last uh, race in Australia before she went overseas. She ended up staying a little longer and raced a couple more times before going on and uh, and winning and dominating over in England. But but we did that show at Mooney Valley on Friday night. Do you recall that when, when we had your horses? And that would have been their last real show. We did a couple of other impromptu shows with them, but that was their real show, real last show here in Australia. It was a packed house. I think it was about 30,000 people at the racetrack. Um, it was in between races and one of them was uh, just after Black Caviar had won, which I think might have been like the Australian Stakes or something. It was a big group one race and uh, and we performed there at Mooney Valley. Do you remember that, Dan? Oh, absolutely, mate. Actually, that that one, for whatever reason, whether it was, you know, being the last, one of the last shows that we had our horse there for or, you know, the, the stories that unfold in this, um, uh, you know, part that make stand out. I, I actually still have and it might be a good one to throw up on the um, on the pod on the podcast, throw up on the on our Facebook is the picture of the four the four of us: uh, you, me, uh, Biffo, and uh, Donald. Yeah, well, that's right. I remember we all. This was pre-show, wasn't it? Is that the photo you're talking about? That's right. And I think yep. I've I think I've seen some of the photos from that show. I think there was a photographer that flicked us some photos from that show as well with your Roman riding like down the straight. Um, and then I think I might have had the mirror and fold there, and we had a bit going on, and it, and it was and it was really cool. It was a, yeah, it was a cool. It was a cool show, but it was. I mean, that was a pretty, you know, big electric atmosphere and being out on that track like where we were, it wasn't certainly not um, one of the easier venues that we've performed at. No, absolutely. There's a few things. It's nighttime. It's it's the grass. Also, we had time restrictions because we were in between races and they couldn't exactly tell us how long we're going to have, but we also couldn't go outside the time limit that they were going to allow us, you know, literally, you know, moments before will be like, you got five minutes, you got seven minutes, whatever it might be. And then you've also got a lot of excited young city people who aren't really necessarily there for the horses. Uh, they might be there just for a bit of history and a bit of fun and and, and knowing that Black Caviar was uh, going to be her last race in Australia and there was so much media. It was also a long weekend. And, and so that was, there was just a bunch of, for better words, pissheads um, all along the fence as well. So you've got to sort of block that out because, you know, they're all having their two cents and, and whatnot. And then you're trying to perform and, and like you mentioned, keep your horses under control at the same time. So it certainly yeah. wasn't one of the, the easiest shows. Oh, do a backflip. Oh, do a double backflip. That's why we got Donald because we used to do that thing. Oh, you were backflip. Donald, come on <laughs> right. out. And then the first time you do a backflip, then they go, oh, 
well, you do a double. It's sort of it's like be original for once. But um, yeah. but but, but moving, <laughs> moving on from that show because we've got heaps to um to go over here. It sort of starts by talking about these boys because we go back to the hotel and by the time we pack up our horses and we had to I don't know again if you remember this, but we had to like drive the horses out of town. They couldn't stay at the racetrack, so we drove them out of town. Then we drove back to our accommodation, which was essentially next door to the racetrack. So you're back into town, and then the boys decided yeah. that they were going to go out, and we, and we weren't going to go out in the town because we also then had a clinic starting the very next morning, which meant we had to not only get up early, That's right. we had to go and pick those horses up again, then go to um, the the like the new location of the clinic, which we hadn't been to before. And you're driving around the city; they were on opposite where the horses were staying and where the clinic was. They're at opposite ends of the city, and uh, and we needed to leave really early. And so those boys went out together, both uh, Biffin and, and Donald, and they only got back literally, I don't know whether it was like 45 minutes to an hour before we had to leave. Do you remember that? Oh, I do. It's funny that you say that because I was just actually retelling the story just the other day. Um, so, I, yeah, very, very clear-minded about it. I remember us uh, putting the heat on them um, about, you know, getting packed up and ready to leave. I'm pretty sure that Donald left, you know, three shirts, several socks and whatever else didn't, you know, fell out of his uh, swag on the way from the hotel room to the truck. Yeah, we, we were kicking them uh, and, and we weren't amused at all because we were just upset ourselves that we have to get up early and, and get moving. But we didn't go out. We, we, we were professional and so we were kicking the swags I remember and upping them because they were dragging their feet and chucked them in the truck but then it keeps leading on so we we go pick up the horses we would have got breakfast we drove there we got a little lost getting there because I remember I've been to this venue since and and it is it's a bloody uh, again for better words a prick of a place to find so we've gone there and I remember we've taken some dodgy roads Um, even at one point it was like a a gravel hill and, and the truck had the trailer on and I remember bloody having to I didn't get enough traction getting up the hill and I had to back down the hill and have a second crack at it and it was it was just we're pretty frustrated but anyway we got there we were doing a clinic and our own show and while we're doing a big morning introduction and a chit chat we're chatting to this group of participants it's probably about 20 odd participants it's you and I giving them a a brief and they're all looking at us and then we noticed collectively all their heads just turned away from us and they all stayed captivated by something that was behind us to the to, to the side and so eventually you and I, you know, trying to hold this crowd, we both looked over and what we saw was Donald leading the majority or pretty much a complete team. And then we saw Alex Biffin walking behind him, the biggest dude in in almost the universe with no shirt on leading one horse, or you can't even call him a horse, a miniature horse in please tailing behind. And again, we had 20 odd girls with their draw on, with their jaw, I should say, on the ground. And and that is a vivid memory for me. Well, the, the, um, I, I 100% remember that. But the, the part that you that I think that I that you've skipped over, which is the part to me that stands out the most. So remember, we got to the venue where the horses were at, right? Yeah. And we loaded all the horses up, and there's no bifo. Do you remember this oh, part? Enough. No, he disappeared. So we, we oh, this frog. <laughs> I tell you what, I'm th- I'm I'm throwing um, my daughter's um, like there's a uh, floating device here. I've got it in my hand. I can't quite see the exact location of it, but next time he makes a noise, I'm going to throw this floaty at him. <laughs> so going back, to, so we've got all the horses loaded up on the truck, and we're like, "Where's Biffo?" Well, I don't know if it's 
to caretakers' house, the main house to what, but just in the backyard, there these people oh, I remember had now. one of those little yes. kitty schools. Yes, I remember right? now. And 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 Biffo is again back in his dock, but he's gone in and got in that kitty school <laughs> and like half out. He's got his arms hanging out, his head's over the edge, and he's just like clawed out, half out in the kitty school. And at that exact moment, one of the ladies from the house comes out the back door in her night nightgown to see what like is going on. She must have heard us loading horses. Spot Biffo in the kiddie pool, takes off, runs back inside, and I'm like, oh, you know, what's going to happen now? Well, she's gone and grabbed her daughter and, remember, brought her out, and they're, they're taking photos. <laughs> it was like, um, you know, a scene out of the movie Thor where Thor falls from the sky onto the ground and they there's these people discovering him. They couldn't believe and their luck. They're out there taking, yeah, they're, they're like, you know, looking up to heaven like, you know, thank you, God, like, what did you just, like, send uh, to us that landed on Earth in our kiddie pool in the backyard? <laughs> I, I remember that now you say it. I remember him being in that pool and, uh, and yeah, then getting in. He just needed a little refresher and get, then he gets in the truck wet. Yeah, and then you, you sit, sit in the middle seat between you and I and you turn on the air con and he's sitting there shaking. Oh, I'm going to get this wrong. I don't know if I got him, but it's quietened him down, down for a moment. Um, and then uh, so then you turn on the air con and he's sitting in the middle there shaking. Yeah, serves him right. But it was hot. There was like a heat wave. It was ridiculous. And it was, yeah, like a, this is sort of, sun, you know, for, for the listeners, the sun's just coming up. You know, we, we left at like 4 a.m. and uh, out of Melbourne to get everything organized. We get there and like I said, these girls, their, their draw just drop, drops when they see him. And the whole time, like he's on holidays from, you know, from Vegas and uh, being in the Thunder Down Under team. And he's just letting loose. Like he could drink a carton of beer during the day while we were doing a clinic and it wouldn't even affect him. He's just like, he's just a big unit, right? And so that was the other sort of lead on from this story. We go from there and we go up to... Wagga Wagga and again it's still filthy hot and uh, and he's smashing these beers smashing these beers and I remember one night day at the hotel he says um, oh, I'm feeling really flat fat and bloated I'm going to go for a run and he goes out and he hasn't been like we've not seen him work out once while he's been with us he gets out and does this like 10 kilometer run in like again 40 degree heat which would be what 100 plus degrees over there yeah like, yeah, like 110. 100 and 115 110 yeah and he goes, yeah. goes for a 10k run in a pretty quick time like it was nothing just he just wanted to sweat out some of the alcohol and this is when I'm like this dude is just an athlete and then when he we're back at the showground there and I don't know if I've told this story I feel like I've told this story just recently but I can't remember if it was on the podcast so I apologize if it is on one of the early episodes but we we had in this old truck um that roof rack where we chuck the hay and then he gets there and yeah. and we're, we're bringing it up by rope remember I'd throw a long rein down and you would attach it and then we'd jimmy it back up to feed the horses we bought some hay there and I would be on the roof rack on top of this big truck and he says and it's at loosened bales which are heavy he says why don't you chuck them up and we're just like yeah good on you and so he starts hurling these things up from the ground and they landed on top of this roof and the way there was only one that he threw that didn't quite make it and it fell back down to him so the next time he tossed it so high it went over my head and to the complete opposite side of the truck so I'm just like this guy is literally Hercules and uh, and and I had a whole new level of respect for him and that's one of the stories like I said I apologize I feel like I might have told it before on the podcast because I do tell it quite often because again it's such a clear vivid memory that I have of him but at that same clinic this is the second story which goes into the horrified category 
story is that we had Amelia and Apollo there and uh, and and your flights had been delayed a little bit to get them to the States. And so Pia was already pretty good at her Roman writing, but, um, but, but she hadn't done a whole lot of the Liberty Roman writing and she just started with your two. And I remember you said, look, you should, you should get on these horses again because it's going to be one of the last opportunity for a while and, and just have another go. And she'd been going really good. And she was in that arena at, um, at the Wagga University there, which is, which is a fairly good size um, indoor arena. And she's tracking around on them beautifully, no pads, no bridles, standing up on them. And she went to turn around backwards, um, which she had done before, but, uh, but she jumped and turned around backwards. And, and normally, and, and I'm not, I'm not a fan of turning around backwards at the best of times, whether I'm sitting on a horse or standing on a horse, unlike yourself, but you would, you would just step around backwards and then jump back to forwards where, where she jumped backwards yeah. and she got like double bounced off the back end and it like catapulted her. And all I remember was her, it was like, like the reverse scorpion. Like she crashed head first into the ground, but her feet went over her head and the scream of pain that came from her was again, horrifying. It was the only saving grace was that she did scream because we at least knew she was conscious, but, but didn't know whether she'd broken her back or spine or whatever. Like it was just, it was, it was horrendous and it wasn't the horse's fault. They didn't do anything. It was just, um, Pierre hadn't ever done that before. And, and, and even you said at the time you saw her doing it and you were like, what the hell, you know, that's not how we normally do it, but whatever. And of course it didn't, didn't work out in her favor. And that memory, that's probably one of the most, I guess for me, the most scared I'd been while being conscious. Like I've had a couple of good wrecks, but I've never been conscious to them. And then, you know, I've seen a few wrecks here and there, but you can sort of see that it's okay. Um, but that one there, I just, I just remember, like I said, it just scared the crap out of me, to be honest. You remember that? Oh yeah, absolutely, mate. You know, that was, that was, um, that was really scary. Um, being, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things you, I remember it's kind of like happening in slow motion and, um, you know, seeing it happen and, and that appear was, um, yeah, it was super scary in that, um, in that moment. But, um, yeah, watching it and not being able to do anything and seeing it kind of un- unfold. Yeah. yeah. And we all ran yeah, over. They, like, uh, they all do definitely stand out. Yeah. And we all, um, you know, I don't know if Donald or whoever else was with us. I remember, you know, like we're quick to, to get there, but like you said, there's nothing you can do as it's happening and it's just the aftermath and it's just a complete accident. It wasn't like the horses shied or whatever, or, you know, kicked up. I mean, they were just traveling at a trot beautifully. It was, and I'm pretty sure they would just, as they do, just stop, turn around and sort of wonder where you've gone. But, um, but yeah, that, that's my couple of stories. I want to move on again pretty quickly because now it gets into, I guess, you flying over to the States with them. So that's where I want to start. I'm, I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions here. Oh, that damn frog's come back again. He's, he's going to be the nemesis. He must be working for, for one of the other buddy podcasts just getting in there getting in our ear <laughs> yeah. yeah so so you you flew because like i said it got delayed a couple of times um the flights but then you actually flew with your horses what was that like and can you tell us a little bit about that experience yeah look I, it was the first time that i'd ever flown with horses so i wasn't you know 100 percent sure what to expect and i don't remember the name of the arab stallion that flew with us but it was basically for those that have never seen um you know transportation what they fly horses in it's basically loading them on a tra- on a straight load trailer um, and we had three of them and they stay in that that shipment until their you know final destination and the Arab Dalian of course um, he was completely full of himself and I was the groom 
been responsible for all, all three on this light and uh, not really knowing what what I was getting myself into for it ended up being by far the longest light that I have ever done I went through three different changes of um, pilots and crew it was a um, it wasn't a passenger jet it was just cargo so we flew from uh, Sydney to Melbourne Melbourne to Hong Kong Hong Kong to um, Anchorage in Alaska and then Alaska to um, uh, Miami and uh, I mean it was 48 hours this light time um, alone and uh, so I would be with the horses on takeoff and cut down and uh, I would check in with a white like a this kind of a weird deal like you had it was a system where you put on a headset and then every like I don't know if it was every 12 or 48 feet you'd have to plug this headset in to communicate and that with the pilot let them know where you were at in the plane it's massive plane like the, the amount of storage that's in the underbelly of them is just crazy um the horses themselves traveled really well for me it was you know like not really knowing for every like i think uh i think i started every hour and a half and then i got it out to like two hours and then maybe three hours about going down and checking them um but it was a long 48 hour uh trip i remember being in that frog um i remember being i think it was in hong kong and it was stifling hot on the tarmac where we were where we were waiting <laughs> i'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna kill it i'm gonna kill it if i can find it <laughs> we, we might have there might be a protected species so we might um just relocate it <laughs> yeah, yeah. yes okay i'll just relocate it thank you um so yeah i remember being stifling hot and um uh one of the things that you know i freaked out about i think i called pier about it was that some of the water containers that they had on the plane for us i'd given the horses um the water out of the containers and i heard something rattle in the bottom of the containers do you remember this and no. i called back and there was a bunch of old dirty syringes and oh. needles in in the bottom of it all right no I freaked out about that, and yeah. of course, there was nothing that nothing that I could do. But um, yeah, the uh, I think I remember calling Pierce saying like, "What should I do?" And he's like, "Well, not knowing what's in, in there, there's not much we can really do. Just keep an eye on them." Yeah. So this is my question to you about it all. Did at any point were they unloaded from the plane, and and or they just stayed in the same cargo plane the whole time? So they stayed in the same uh, like I guess uh, stall that they were loaded into in Sydney. Yeah. And then they um, were only taken off the port off the plane um, I believe in uh, Melbourne when we changed plane and then they stayed in that deal like I think in Hong Kong they moved we moved them around in that um, shipping container to unload some other um, equipment but they stayed in that um, in that one deal the whole on the whole voyage yeah right because I've um, I've done the trip myself with double image uh, to New Zealand he's gone over a couple of times but I've only been across with him once and and the loading up and down into the plane was probably for the, for the horse the most unsettling part like going on the little lift and then they push them in and all yeah. the rollers and the noises and, and I don't know if your crate was was it open or did it have a roof on it because um, I've I seen mean, them all a bit different yeah the, ours had ours had a roof on it um, like it was kind of just in front of them that was, was closed off but I'll never forget like when they started moving and bumping it around of course it, it you know annoyed Amelia and of course she went there she you know every time that they bumped it or you know suddenly stopped it she would kick out yeah she does <laughs> letting know the displeasure of uh, of what she thought of them. Yep, and then and then as you said, you had to care for the Arabian stallion, and, and how did he cope with it all? Oh, I mean that son of a gun, like he walked on, like you know, like he was, you know, had just taken a line of coke a and got off the other end exactly the same way. There you go. That's why did he was he an endurance Arabian stallion by the sounds of it? Yeah, I, to be honest, I really don't know. I know that he was headed towards Scottsdale in Arizona. That's all I know um, actually about him. Yeah. So, so 
then you land, then you land at Miami, and you're this, the, which we brought up on the podcast before. So you've got the the big rig that you'd been already over already and purchased, and it, it's got the biggest living we've ever seen, but uh, but only four horses. But but again, like mentioned, it, you could land a helicopter on it, so it passed that test. Was there a bit of a story about Justin Cunningham driving that to Miami to to pick you up, mate? I feel like that we have to almost have Justin tell that part of the story. Like there's no way that I could do it justice. What's the short version and then we might get the extended version at another time? I mean, the short version is that he had like, we were originally meant to fly into um, LA and then it got changed and then it was Miami and then the, you know, from the truck meant to be ready and of course then there was um, a big snowstorm that hit Kentucky at that point in time um, of when we were meant to, you know, arrive there. Like it was just, you know, kind of one of those deals like one drama after the other, um, which I had no idea about that was going on um, of course and uh, Justin as Justin does just you know handles it all in stride and rolls with it but yeah he was uh, there at the other end of, um, to pick us up and we did uh, I think three days quarantine there in Miami when we uh, when we hit the tarmac but I was uh, shocked at the uh, lack of purity for better words you might say getting into Miami I mean I wasn't I don't even remember them looking at my passport let alone in- inspecting any of my bags or gear I just rolled off the plane uh, with the two horses uh, and went to the quarantine area and wasn't asked a word. Maybe that's how I can get my my return trip back there to the States. Um, <laughs> yeah. Start becoming a groom for IRT. There's a shout out. So, so yeah, I, I remember that. And, and, it, and it's a good thing to bring up because you've also, you've just brought these horses out of an Australian summer, which isn't too dissimilar to an American summer, but it's, but it's summertime. And then you've gone into an American winter, which now that is quite significantly different to an Australian winter. Like when you talk about snowstorms and a like, that process of conditioning the horses, um, you know, you're there by yourself. We're back in Australia. What was that like? Did they get sick or anything like that? Or again, did they take it all in their stride? Yeah, you know, look, mate, I think, it, you know, a couple of things. One, by the first great guide. And secondly, um, you know, just with being there with involved with TaylorMade and having, you know, Rude and Riddle, who we were still using at that time as our vet, uh, you know, veterinary practice and that, which are just, you know, some of the best vets in the world. I mean, like, honestly, we, we didn't um, encounter, you know, even uh, any hiccup or anything. The horses just, you know, rolled right on through. I think they were a little in shock as the, the cold weather coming um, from Australia with a winter, sorry, with a summer coat. But, you know, with um, the horse blankets and rugs and stuff that we had on, we took care of them. And, I mean, I, I always tell people this, like, in comparison to do ground transportation in a truck and trailer, that air transportation, I reckon, is like 10 times easier on them, especially, obviously, if you're not hitting any kind of turbulence or any think like that it's um significantly um i think more easier on them because they can you know literally cock a leg and rest where on being in a trailer they're always shifting and adjusting their weight yeah and i, I agree like going that short trip that i did across you know to new zealand which was nothing like going to the states um it was really only even the takeoff like people had told me because i didn't know what to expect they said oh the only thing's really the takeoff and the landing but um it wasn't even that it was just the loading of the cargo you know when and we we sat funnily enough for us where they we needed to be at the airport at like seven o'clock in the evening and then they were talking about loading us at about the plane was supposed to depart about nine or nine thirty but they say with the freight planes they don't get a designated slot to to fly out they have to give way to all the commercial flights so they say we've got to get you on the plane ready a little bit early and then you might sit there for a while before you actually take off well they they load these horses i can't remember what time might be about eight eight thirty into those um into the into the crates and then I, I went in a crate and I, it only had uh, it had maybe double image and one other horse and 
then I had to sit in there. They drive us out to the tarmac to load us, but then they don't load us. And there's a bit of an issue. They're unloading this plane and it has this massive jet engine that they're bringing out and they had a heap of trouble getting it out of the plane. And then eventually they get this thing as hours and hours. So the horse actually spent more time sitting in the crate than he actually did flying because the flight across to New Zealand is pretty quick. And we're waiting and waiting. And then they start talking about curfew. And we got brought in by transport trucks, but they basically said that they wouldn't let the transport truck leave because there was a chance that this plane wasn't going to fly out tonight and they're going to have to redo it all the next day. So they held them up. So they're waiting for wow. hours on end. We're, we're sitting in yeah. the crates on the tarmac again, waiting, and they're just fidgeting with this bloody big, big engine, which they'd already got in the plane. They're just trying to get it out of the plane. And uh, anyway, eventually they say, we're going to get past curfew, but apparently there's like a half an hour buffer zone where they'll let you fly if you get an, um, ticked off by a mechanical engineer that the plane had to be grounded. So they were going through all of that. Then they load us up and it's like 11.30 when we get in this thing. So we've been sitting around since, like I said, it was like seven o'clock and then we get there at 11.30 and, and I'm wondering, am I actually going to go or not, you know, and with the horse. And then once we got in and we're locked and loaded in the plane, I'm not sure if it was the same for you, but the, you had your cargo hold. Then we went upstairs and they just basically sat in like, it wasn't quite business chairs, but they were bigger than usual um, chairs and they had a, you know, a little bit of food up there and, and we sat up there with the rest of the grooms and and uh, got introduced to the pilot and whatnot until we landed and it was flying at night time so I had a little nap and uh, by the time we landed like I said the horse double image got to New Zealand and he was fresher than I'd taken him to any show yeah yeah totally I um, I totally agree with that anytime that I've been and since after flying with mine and some other horses I think the, uh, the air transportation is um, super easy on them so there you go if anyone wants to uh, get on board and sponsor Double Dan with a, a jet plane would be more than happy to start cutting our horses around uh, professionally by air so any listeners out there just um, hit me up on the socials that would be fine let's uh, let's go so we go there so you got the horses you mentioned tailor made so they were almost like I don't know if you it's like a uh, like adopted family sponsored family that that took you under their wing so to speak where they housed the horses um, got us on the road wait wait there's, there's, there's. I've just I can the, now see the frog oh you're going to capture him I've uh-huh. been I've been going after the frog which I thought was in the bushes and it's not it's sitting on the pool rail into the pool oh. so I, I now have a target have this cheeky little bugger in clear view right here well let you know where to throw the floaty next time it's gone quiet it's a, it's a relocation so yeah so Taylor made become a huge part of this you know initial I guess double Dan USA the thing that I remember about my first uh, visit there is that your horses are there it is snowing and it's a good idea to do a photo shoot that's what they decide let's get a few photos since the boys are there together pre-road to the horse and I sat in that trailer of yours with the heater on I must have had about <laughs> six layers those big yellow gloves that are lined and we went out there and we we took these photos which got used for like calendars and pamphlets and websites and Facebook maybe we'll even chuck them up on the social and we're like smiling grimacely just going take the effing photo because I want to get back on the heater and I'm sure the horses were saying the same thing because they wanted to get back to having their rugs on and whatnot and that was my little first introduction really to TaylorMade and uh, and your horses being in the States and all of us crew like I don't know it seemed like a pretty big entourage came across in preparation for Road to the Horse which this is 2012 it's the first time the Double Dan's appear at Road to the Horse it's an international event it's the first time they've done an international event so they had it and we'll just explain this for the listeners it had a Team Australia Team USA and Team Canada you and Guy McLean represented Team Australia it was uh, Pat Pirelli and Craig Cameron, I believe. 
believe, in Team USA. Correct. And, and then Canada, we had Jonathan Field and Glenn Stewart, uh, yeah. which which were all really good friends. Um, it, it's it's. I mean, it was the first time for myself meeting a lot of those guys. Craig Cameron, you know, I knew of Pat Pirelli. Oh, no, that's right. We'd met Pat Pirelli in 2010. We talked about him in the earlier podcast um, there. But but Jonathan Field, I mean, that was a treat meeting John and Glenn. They were great guys. Um, they did a hell of a job. They, they had a couple of tough horses. Before we get into the road to the horse, the competition itself, preparation. What what was your preparation like? What did you do? What was your prep? Oh, mate. Um, you can't say nothing. You know, I know that I was meant to, yeah, I know that I was meant to read the rules and that part I pretty much failed miserably on, on that first year of going there. Um, I don't think you're much better the second, but it was it was really the third that you that you really clicked into gear. Yeah, kind of a slow learner on 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 that part of it. Because it was um, a, that's probably that's probably pretty fair. I was yeah, I wasn't a pen wrangler because um, your teammate was your help and your pen wrangler, so I didn't even have much responsibility other than you and I did our clinic demos together and I assisted with the entertainment and and uh, and spent time in the booth. But but that so I can't even um, take the blame for not being a good assistant there. It was really up to, to Guy. And I did get to sit in on the on the meeting that they have with the judges. And that was one of the most intense meetings I've ever been a part of where they're talking about the rules. They go, they literally, there's, I don't know whether it's 20 odd pages of rules. They go through it line by line. We're in that meeting for a few hours, line by line, rule by rule. And that and they and there was some equipment that remember the dressage whip, they weren't going to allow the dressage whip, which was a huge part of both yourself and Guy McLean's program and and you didn't even know yep. that was a rule so so you, when yeah, I talk I about your prep you're preparing to use your dressage whip and then they're telling you no you can't so we argued that one pretty yep. uh I guess passionately and then all that all that came of it was you had to put something on the end of it I think you got away with putting a little bit of plastic on it they said a bit of leather they they, they gave and, and this is where it gets a bit ridiculous with the rules at Road to the Horse like no other competition as far as cult starting has the rules and I understand the rules the rules are there to protect the horses right what they're trying to say for the listeners that you know the, the horses were put under pressure to be broken in and started in such a short amount of time that they have to protect them and make sure the trainers aren't going to push them excessively but my argument always to this was that's the judge's responsibility they always had a, a get out clause with the judges being able to warn the competitor first and foremost they, they would warn you about something that they they didn't think was was appropriate and that was just a just a straight up warning nothing actually happened just they just say hey you're on notice. Then your second warning, uh, again, from memory, and you correct me if I'm wrong, you'd get a time deduction. You'd have to step out of the yard and they would do a points deduction. So they would really make it hard for you to sort of come back from that. And then third, if you if you still went back in that yard and done something excessively that they didn't appreciate, you're disqualified, which they've never done. They've never disqualified a competitor. It's never got that far. So so my argument, even though I wasn't a competitor and I wasn't even uh, a um, wrangler, was that that's up to the judge. I mean, it shouldn't be the tools. It's, it's about how you use them. So if they're using a dressage whip and, and their, their worry was somebody was going to go out there and whip the hell out of a horse with a dressage whip and it looks bad and, and it's not great. Well, I thought, well, that you've got a rule to accommodate that. Isn't that the point of the judges being able to walk up to you and say, hey, James or Guy or whoever's using it, hey, mate, you know, you better quit that or, or we're going to give you a second warning. And is that how you see it? Yeah, and I think that, you know, like on, I totally agree in, with what you're saying. I think that the problem with where most of those rules end up getting brought in is because it's something that they haven't thought or taken into account but then all of a sudden they find themselves in the midst of the competition it's now happening and then they're like what do we do 
doing now. So then the following year, they're always like, well, you know, we should make that a rule. Um, but I think that like what you're pointing out is that like the judges really have ultimate control and it should be at their discretion. But, you know, man, we start talking road to the horse. I feel like that we could do, you know, several podcasts just talking about our experiences that have been um, on, you know, at road to the horse. Yeah. And, and where I make the point, and I agree, like absolutely what you said, 100%, James, that it's the rules uh, are often made in retrospect and uh, in hindsight. But then at the same time, they always had that rule where the judges had the final say. And a lot of the times judges, because of so many rules and so, so much technicality, and it's also like an event that really doesn't exist. It's not like it's had, you know, there's a show on every weekend and and they've had, you know, 50 years to adapt and, and change rules and whatever and evolve. It, it, it's only once a year and it's only been going at that time for well, not even 10 years at that point. So it was all, all sort of relatively new. But the judges then didn't seem to have the confidence to actually uphold the rules as far as going in there and, and warning anyone. You know, I, 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 again, we don't want to talk too much out of school, but there has, while we've been there, there's been warnings and things like that to competitors. They've never gone to that, or as far as I know, I've never seen them take that second step. It's only ever been just a discretional, hey, we don't like what you're doing. If you continue, you're going to get penalized. But at that point, every competitor, as far as I know, and you correct me if I'm wrong, has obviously then corrected whatever they were doing and and hasn't gone to that second step. Have you, have you remembered anybody getting actually publicly acknowledged for, for having or being reprimanded for, for going too far? No, I, 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 I don't know. Nobody that I'm certainly aware of. I think there's some that should have been, and because it's easy for anybody in the heat of the moment to get caught up, you know, with um, with the line of competition, and you know, we're all out there trying to, uh, you know, not not only do the best job that we can, but you know, ultimately part of that thing that comes with being successful is you know being driven and, and having um, that ambition and and uh, being competitive. Um, but I think that you know, like I hate at times defending the judges on some of this stuff, but I think you know, like you said like there's been times that we have been whether we've been involved with it or not involved with it um at road to the horse in particular where judges probably you know needed to you know step out and, and have a bit more confidence in themselves in saying hey you know what we're doing here is in violation of what's going on but what i like in my defense to that is like if they were at a cult starting competition and they were judges they let's say that they even did you know six or eight events a year i feel like that their confidence level of knowing what they're looking at right in that moment would be a lot easier for them to make a decision. When when you're in that moment and you do that event, sometimes for some judges at that event, it's the first time that they've ever been there and judged it, let alone done anything else. And I think it's hard in that moment to think, you know, from their perspective, like, okay, are we really meant to go that far? Or is that just kind of like, you know, the rule? Like, you know, if you're a reigning horse judge or, you know, in the stock horse field and you've judged, you know, hundreds of these events and seen them, you don't hesitate on, you know, typically on, you know, giving somebody a minus or a plus or a maneuver where in that deal they're there and they you know they judge one event you know that year if they've judged it before yeah and and the thing is and this is where we do have to put it put it out there that it's it's not a normal competition it's not where you bring a product that you prepared earlier and these rules are stated that we want to see it go left and do walk trot canner go right do walk trot canner you, you do you're doing the behind the scenes training in and not only in front of the judges but in front of you 
know, thousands of people and they have to judge you on that. And everybody, they want different styles. So they want, they don't want the same style. They, it's there to not only be competitive and a lot of people don't agree that it should be a competition. I'll just put that out there, but, but let's just say, okay, it's a demonstration for, for it's a demonstration that's getting scored. So you're also trying to, you know, demonstrate different methods. And that's where it gets a little tricky because just because one judge is going, well, I don't like this, but this guy might be just on the brink of changing this horse and, and, and having an unreal moment that you don't want to be the guy that just pulls him up just before that happens. But at the same time, you're looking at it going, well, I wouldn't do that. And in my experience, I've never done it, but it doesn't look like it would work. And then make that call. It's a pretty big call to make, you know, unless you've actually done that and said, look, I know where this is going and it's not going good. I'm going to stop him right now, which has probably never happened. They're just looking at it going, well, I don't like the look of it, but maybe he knows more than I know about it. And it's going to come off in his favor. And so that's probably where they sit on their side of caution, just letting things unfold. And they don't want to put like in those meetings that we're talking about, they even brought this up. They're like, we do not want to get that far. We do not want to take points off anybody, which is, which is comforting to know that you're there to do, to do your job. Um, but at the same time, it, it just makes it more of a tricky event to judge than probably people are aware of. Like everybody watches and they just have somebody's style that they like, or maybe they're already a fan of Dan James before they turned up or Guy McLean or they're, they're Australian. So they're already barracking for Australia or whatever it is. You're already persuaded. You already want to like them. And you're already looking at the other guys going, oh, I wouldn't do that. And you don't even know what they're doing. Where the judges have to look at things subjectively and take themselves out of the equation. And I think that's, if anything, and any credit that we can give to those judges, that's that's something that, I mean, it's it's not a great event to, to judge. I've had to judge some smaller events um, and, and, and I haven't taken any joy in it. Uh, what about yourself? Have you judged any of them like that before? There's been a, um, a handful of them that um, I have judged and I think it's, um, you know, it is probably, in, in my opinion, it's probably one of the more trickier horse events to judge um, than most that are out there. I think it's um, uh, because, as you said before, you're looking at a horse in progress rather than, you know, showing somebody turning up to a regular horse show saying, hey, this is the horse that I have and this is what I'm showing. Yeah, and the degree of difficulty um, is I, the one that pulls everybody up, doesn't it? It does. And, and I, you know, I think that there's, um, you know, probably someone that's been there multiple times that, you know, that has seen it as, you know, I, I respect his opinion and that a lot um, on it. And he hasn't been a competitor, but has been involved in, um, you know, helping be that liaison between, you know, competitors and judges. And I think that his view on it is um, I, I have always really liked and respected. Um, it is, you know, and one, one of the things that, that he's always said, like he would always rather see it be that the first two days a, a referee and the last day is judged. Yeah. And I think for me that that's probably one of the, you know, the most unique yet best ways to do it because it's just like what you pointed out before. You see somebody doing something and you're like, man, I don't know if I would do that. I don't know if it's the right thing to do. But let's see how this plays out. As long as he doesn't step out of these criteria, let's allow him to do it and see if it pays off for him on the last day because the horse isn't going to lie. As yeah. long as we're not crossing lines of, of you know, cruelty intimidation, and, yeah. you know, you know that that aspect of it, I think that it's a, uh, you know, maybe a fairer system. The other thing that I think that over the years, and I do believe that with Western Horsemen becoming involved, that it'll continue to get better than, than it ever has. Um, but I think some of the restrictions in which that have been put on there, I mean, there's been years that you could use a saddle horse and then you couldn't use a saddle horse. You could use somebody on the ground, then you couldn't use somebody on the ground. And I think that it misses the point a little bit because originally, they, you know, um, you know, two to use to, you know, 
promote about like, hey, you know, we want to show these people like how that you can have this connection and communication with a young horse that you're starting at home. But we really don't want you to do that. We want you to do it within these guidelines. That's how I, and always, I always felt. Yeah. Struggled, struggled with that part of it because it should be like, hey, if there's an easier way right here and right now to help this horse, and this is about education and about demonstrating, and yes, it's a competition, then hey, let, let's allow these competitors to use what means that they would if they were at home because the moment that you say to a competitor or to somebody in that situation hey well you can't we want you to do your style but we don't want you to use all the things that you would do if you were at home well yeah. you, you're losing sight of what you set out to firstly achieve that's how after doing that meeting that first time that's exactly how i felt you, you hit the nail on the head there by thinking that not necessarily who's got the best program here it's who follows the rules the best and who also understands that manipulation of the perception of it and and how to how to how to make the judges perceive that you one had the more difficult horse that's one part two then you've got to show that you've also not only oh, i've had a really tough horse because if you've got a real easy horse and they they don't score you on everything they're just like oh well he's got an easy horse so you got to show him he looks tough whether he is tough or not then you've got to show progression so then you've got to make things look very dramatic and make things look you know quite extreme in improvement and, and then you've got to be able to be a showman and like anyone and that's fair enough that's a part of the game be able to hide things that you might not have done you know and being able to work that part out and 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 i'm not saying that's you know that's how you compete like i know that and a good friend of yours a good friend of ours and chris cox has been one of the all-time competitors in it because he has got a fantastic program but he does understand every part to road to the horse not just starting colts you know he knows how to start colts he doesn't need to win road to the horse to prove to the world that he knows how to start colts he knows how to start colts but then that competitiveness he knows how to work the system and that's why he's undefeated yeah and i the other thing that i've made the comment on is that often at road to the horse i think that there's um three types of outcomes who did the best job who did the best job um on that day but then whose horse went the best on that day and very few years that i have been there i'm not saying this for all the others but for the years that i've been there has that always aligned um other than that other than what i would say the years that chris has been there i think that um you know chris has dominated it um as you said because he's a you know world class and you know probably um in our time you know one of the greatest cult starters and horsemen that you know that that has anybody has ever seen and he in those moments has not only shown his horse the best on the last day but did the job to you know to get there but you know in other years you can see that somebody else you know probably had a tougher horse did a better job but it didn't work out on the last day and that's where I think the question for me always comes back to the judges like are you judging who does the best job or are you judging whose horse did the best on the on the final day when it went when it mattered but because that, yeah. those those combinations aren't always the same but that's to the judges um, credit as far as or, or at least defense is what you were saying before about saying well if if you went and only refereed the previous rounds and then you just turned up with the judges on the final round for example at, at the end of the day they're not going to know about the like they can't they can't go back into hindsight oh you had the tougher horse so it didn't progress because that's essentially what a tougher horse does it, he's slower to progress so it's it's then also going to come down to not only who does the better job but probably who draws the better horse you know 
know, who selects that horse that can progress. And and that's where you're always going to have a gray area in the competition. And I think that's fine. Like if you don't like it, don't compete, to be honest. That's how I look at it. Like I know, and we'll talk about it when it comes up, when I competed, that things didn't go my way and and, and work out. But, but at the same time, I was okay with it. Like I, I still, you know, would I've liked to have won it? Absolutely, you know. Um, but at the same time, you know, I, I accepted it and moved on really quickly because of that reason because it's like it's it's not bulletproof you know no competition really is at the end of the day it's it's a part of the experience and and then being proud of what you've done how you've represented yourself that's to be honest you know this is just a side note for me uh, for, for the listeners even as far as competing that's how I look at everything that I do you know whether I can be happy and proud of of how I worked or what I produced you know how I set my horse up th- then I'm okay if it wins fantastic that's a double bonus if I don't win I still walk away okay I would rather do that than sacrifice the horse and sacrifice my product and just make the win and I've had that happen before and then you think oh well I got the win but as you know Dan you've won some pretty big things that that's really short-lived that feeling of achievement that when you win something and that strokes your competitive ego when that happens it doesn't last very long right so to me what lasts longer is how you got there the experience of it all and the product that you achieved at the end of it and are you going to be competitive when you go back again like you've won these big um you know raining ca- uh, i was gonna say raining cow sorry but the big raining freestyles but you've been able to back it up consistently if you if you're not first you've been second you know you like you're always there so that to me speaks about how you achieve it you didn't just come out blow everybody out of the water and then your horse was so wired about it you can never get him back in the arena again is is that how you see competition you know again I feel like there's some of these topics we could literally do whole series on it Um, I've been thinking about it for a while you know like it's um, I I think about it as uh, trials and trophies and what you're talking about I've always had deepest admiration and kind of like wonder about I think that as a competitor that you've probably had one of the the, the best competitive mindset of people that I've I've ever met Um, and I've thought that from a long time you know for for a very very long time Um, there's few people that that I see, um, and I, you know, I don't know much about other sports because I'm not involved in them. But certainly in the horse industry, when it comes to, you know, whether it be raining cow horse, sock horse, um, you know, cold starting, to have the um, mental maturity of what you're talking about, of being able to say, okay, hey, I'm okay if I've done everything that I could do today, and it either did or it didn't work out with me that I didn't get, you know, too caught up on the high, and I didn't, you know, let the low last too long either. And I think that that is a real mental maturity, and it's something that I've, you know, struggled with and probably had to grow, you know, probably grown more about it in the last couple of years. And I'm sure Elizabeth would argue with me on that, that I'm still, um, and I am still growing on it. But I think the, the mental maturity that you're talking about isn't something that comes natural to a lot of people. And I think it, it in more cases and not, especially I know for myself that it's something that has to, um, you know, grow um, because, man, you can get hung up and beat yourself up about the days that don't work. But the reality of it is if I really reflect and look at all the days that it didn't work out, what went wrong, I've never learned as much from losing than 
I did from winning. Yeah, I think you worded that. Not You meant you've never learned as much from winning that you have from losing. Is that what you're saying? Like you learn more from losing. Yeah, exactly. Than you, yeah, I get I get that 100%. And that's why, I mean, what you're saying and the reason why I, I sort of see it differently is like, let's say if you get hung up on the low, like you say, oh, well, the low can really beat me up and it can beat me up for a long time. But then you, you, if you look at the highs, you don't get caught up in the highs. You can't. You can't say that if you won an event, let's say you do win a futurity or a cult start or whatever it is that you're aiming to win. Do you walk around for 12 months with this bulletproof armor of saying, I'm the best, I'm the greatest, I won, I won. You don't, you don't do you? You have a good night generally, right? No. You, you socialize. Like I, I've literally never met those people. If that, if they exist, like I've met a lot of winners and I've never met one like that, right? So if they exist, then maybe I'm yeah. wrong. All of them, you, you can have a good night, right? So you can have a great night. You celebrate it with your friends. You get hung up in the moment. Then you wake up the next morning and it's like literally you're back, back to work or whatever, driving home from the event. And yeah, you might have a smile on your face, but it, but it's, it, it doesn't last that long. That's why you get back home and you start working for the next win. So that means me, I think, well, it needs to be sort of equal there where if, if, if you're out there getting hung up on the low and you're letting that last for, for days or weeks or months or even a year, then it needs to be balanced out where that means if you win, you should be carrying on for whatever equal amount of time of happiness, but it doesn't. So my deal is like, okay, if I have a bad day and I stuffed up, man, I'm, I'm probably going to be pretty miserable that night. You're not going to want to socialize. You're not going to want to hang out. You're going to get in your own head, but then pretty quickly I'm going to move on. So that's why if we can give any advice out there um, for, from my point of view, it is that that I, I just concentrate on on preparation and, and what I've got to do. And then hopefully the cards fall in my favor. And, and if they don't, well, I'm still happy with how I conduct myself. Then I'm going to sleep a lot better that night where if I've done something horribly wrong and I've let my horse down and I'm not going to have a good sleep that night. And regardless of how we finish in the competition, and I have won some competitions, not major competitions where that's happened, but I've won some smaller competitions where I know I didn't do the right thing by my horse and I've won and that's never felt good. You know, it's, it, it doesn't, it doesn't yeah. feel good at all. So that's where, where I learned that lesson. And you can say it's maturity, but I just learned it early on was like, well, that doesn't work either. But I know the feeling that does last. It's when I work hard at home, I put the preparation in and then I deliver myself personally on everything that I wanted to do. And I wanted to be there to support my horse. Like if it's a pattern, if I'm like, geez, this horse is a little bit weak on that left lead. Sometimes he gets the wrong lead. You know, when I'm walking up to wherever I'm supposed to get that left lead. I've got that in my head and I'm going to be like, I'm going to help you out here, bud. Righty, I'm going to overcorrect it or whatever I think is necessary. Exaggerate it. I'll, I'll, I'll take a little penalty if I have to, but we're going to get that left lead and then I'm going to say, good. And then if I'm, same deal though, if I'm coming around and thinking about that middle of that circle and there's a lead change to be had and I'm like, this is you, man. You nail these lead changes. You are a lead changing son of a gun. Man, I'm going to show the judge that he is a lead changing son of a gun and we're going to nail it when we're supposed to nail it. So that's the only thing I can do as far as advice. And like you said it's probably more of a conversation for a whole nother podcast so we won't even get wrapped into it i'm going to just throw another question straight to you working in a team with guy mclean what was that like because pretty much this is the first time you've met guy previously probably not very much i could probably only think of a couple of times talk to him on the phone probably and now you're working with him and correct me if i'm wrong but he was certainly a bit of an idol at that point is is that right yeah absolutely um guy has certainly been somebody that i'd uh you know looked up to for uh, a number of years, um, you know, as a, as a horseman, I was, you know, the, the character that he was, and uh, you know, as, as an entertainer, and I, you know, I think that going into it, I, I don't know where he maybe regarded um, myself going into it. Um, it was, I guess, probably, uh, you know, one of 
the interesting parts because he, he like Guy, um, as good as he is, um, has always been very confident, particularly when it comes to starting Colts. And, you know, I'll, I'll never forget like the moment where he went to um, the first time he cinched his horse up and that pad came out and his saddle goes underneath and he turned that horse's horse arm loose. I could just see how much of that tortured him in that moment. And look, it's one of those things that happened. And, um, you know, you probably don't always expect it to happen at that level um, in that atmosphere. And, um, you know, seeing him sort of, you know, fall apart, um, you know, on that, like, I guess in, in two in two ways, like it was a, you know, a bit of sweet thing. It's like somebody that, you know, that you kind of like look up to, you know, you see there a lot more times, like all the things that they succeed in and not at the moment in which that it falls apart. So, you know, I had that moment of like, oh, he is actually a bit human here. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, but then... Um, I think on the flip side of you know we I, I feel like that in in my round uh, when I went in you know Swampy wasn't the, the easiest of characters to, to start out with and um, after that round it kind of pulled us back into the game and I think it gave him a different level of respect um, you know from you know for, for myself and for us uh, you know going going forward into it I hadn't even actually thought about that exactly how you worded it then um, as, as far as yeah it was a, I'm going to probably talk about two things there meeting him again for, for me was the same like I said I, I we'd seen him at Equitana and he was he was a big deal you know somebody that we aspired to be and and um and you know we we're getting closer bridging that gap to being international clinicians or entertainers which which he was doing at that point and when we got there it was like you know like he, he's got this stuff covered he was so confident and after that first round I mean uh, and I don't want to talk out of school but you know he, he did go to he did go to water a little bit there because he didn't like what happened he he certainly didn't vision that happening and like you said it the, the judges went really hard on him it was it was a critical error and it was an error that could have certainly been prevented and in reflection it wasn't set up that well and like you said you'd had a tough enough deal with uh with swampy and and you, you climbed back some points and it kept you in the game but but i still don't think you you know you guys were in a strong competitive position and and when you know and we should have probably clarified or talked about this even a bit earlier like looking at i think at that point there was two two big rounds and then there's a final and uh and they threw a bit of a, a curveball at you guys when you first selected your horses on the first round they they offered I think um, 50, 50 points I'm going to say to the team that wanted to swap their selection so you all went and selected individually and uh, and then they offered like 50 points for you guys to um, to to swap and the, the Canadian team were the only team that swapped their horses and started with a little bonus and uh, and they and they had two chestnut horses you couldn't bloody tell them apart to be honest so it didn't really matter but but everybody else you know Pat Pirelli was happy with his selection Craig Cameron with his yours with you and 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 your selection let's just talk about that for a fresh little minute for the listeners they <laughs> they give you they give you the breeding you're allowed to talk to the wranglers you're allowed to get in there and discuss it they won't tell you which horses to pick but they might say hey this horse at the farm typically from the limited handling that we've done has been a bit you know standoffish or we know that the you know the mother she, you know that normally her foals take a little longer to start or look there's this mother's always had good foals they've always been easy blah 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 they're going to tell you the same thing that they'll tell everybody else to keep it fair so we're like looking at breeding and looking at the way their disposition they release them in the arena they gallop them around you're trying to get a competitive edge you're trying to look at this one's biting this one's kicking this one's leading this one's tailing whatever i mean it's just really luck of the draw to be honest so so dan james gets it in his head that if there is a gray he's selecting the gray and the only worry that you were probably going to have is if there was zero gray 
grays or there was multiple grays, then you're going to have to make a decision. But there was only one gray. Is that right? Yeah, I think there was only the one gray and there was like the, the Palomino that, um, that Pat, Pat drew. Pat drew, yeah, exactly. And well, actually, he took that the second time. I think he, he had a horse. Yeah. He had a horse get sick or something and uh, and he got a second pick. But um, but anyway, you pick the gray and then and it wasn't necessarily like, that's not how I would have picked. And so I'm like, right, you do you, do you pal. Um, and, uh, and then, and then this thing tries to kick your head off literally on the very, they, they use that footage for nearly every promotional video of Road to the Horse since that. Have you noticed it? I have seen it come across a, um, a different videos a, a few times. Yeah. It was, uh, um, there was, there was a couple of moments. I was like, Oh, it's getting a little close. Or getting a little close. And it was, look, you're going to probably see it differently, but it was more from good luck than good management. You, you, you just were lucky. You could have been the first ever Road to the Horse competitor to be knocked out, lined out. I mean, it could have been worse. I mean, these 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 kicks weren't little warning shots. They they could have they could have kicked your head off, and 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 you're drinking out of a straw for the next six months, eating out of a straw, I should say, um, for the next six months. So you that was extremely lucky. But like you said, it probably gave you some advantage in the fact that um, that the judges knew you had a high de- degree of difficulty. They they always paid you on progress. Um, Pat's horse, you know, I'm pretty sure from from memory, without going back through the footage, he had a redraw and he had to have extra time to make up ground, but he had a really easy horse and Craig Cameron was absolutely smoking it. He was leading the rounds. He was making big points. Um, you guys were sort of struggling. Uh, the two horses that Canada had, were, were they were tough and um, weren't progressing and it looked like it was just going to be a whitewash for America. You know, they were finishing first and second as individual competitors and I think you were, you were just always up there. Um, just behind them, and so we'll get to the get to the last round, which is the final round, which we've already been talking about um, in this podcast with with previous years and competitors, and uh, and they they give you guys another curveball. They say to the competitors, "Look, if you guys now want to swap horses, we're going to give you an extra hundred points." And and I can't remember if it was a hundred points each, so it was like two hundred points, um, but it was a lot. It was a huge advantage, and you and Guy looked at each other and thought, "This is our." way back as soon as we get these extra points we're we're, we're right on the door you know because america had a pretty because they're adding those two points together a pretty substantial lead and uh and and the competitiveness certainly came out of you and excuse me you and guy and you decided to do the swap and you're the only two that do the swap and get those bonus points was there much chat between each other or was it a pretty much united hey we're gonna swap let's get these points i i think and and i remember guy talking about this you know after the fact that you know we definitely both felt that we wanted to start our horses when it was first initially offered up um, that never was really kind of a debate at that point but when it came down to the second time that it was you know put on the table about swapping horses now like I think and Guy put it like this you know it would have been un-Australian not to have, you know not to have rolled the dice and you know like um, you know not sort of hung it out there and, and uh, you know seeing how it you know how it played out so it was very unanimous between the two of us that like yeah like you know that's do this like um you know we're, we're all in so um that that part we both felt pretty confident about and you know like you've done road to the horse and you know kind of you know looking back on it you can imagine what it would be like going into that final day and never working that cult oh, ever absolutely and having to go out and do that round and it's not like you and guy work together so it's a totally different deal if it's you and i that that was the thing they never put yeah. you and i in a team together and hopefully it might still happen because at that point it, it's just too big of an advantage because we know each other's program in and inside and out we know your strengths weaknesses whatever
whatever you want to call it. And we would have just, we wouldn't have even hesitated. We would have just gone, yep, radio. It's not that big of a deal. But when you don't know that guy's program, yep. it, it's it's more than make or break. I mean, if you're looking at it statistically, it's it looks like it's got more chance of failing than it does of succeeding. And that's why America didn't do it. You know, they just went, um, we're, we're, we're far enough in front and we're not going to take the risk. I think when it comes, if we, we, we had the Canadian boys on here, um, Jonathan and, and Glenn, I've talked to them about it and their horses were pretty fractious. So they just thought it's it's again too risky. They they were already far enough, too far behind the points. They just couldn't risk it. And then you guys, it was like it was like the perfect storm where you both had had some tough moments. You both had some progression. You really didn't look like you could win it without it. And you're probably hoping for something like that because Tootie always promised, promises nearly every year, but she predict she particularly did it um, on that year, said that there's going to be some twists. So you knew something was going to happen and we just didn't know what. And then when you guys took that, we're like, we're back in the game. But I don't know if you remember this part, James, that Craig Cameron had set an easy time in the round pen when he went out to that final, his horse bombed big time. He couldn't, that thing jacked up and backed around the arena more than he actually went forward around the arena. And I know since that year, I'm pretty sure you guys got to watch each other compete. But since then, they actually uh, locked the competitors up in almost a chamber, so to speak, where they're sequestered and they can't visually watch anybody. So they get zero advantage. And also they get a little bit, I guess, torture in the fact that you can hear the crowd. Like I remember I milked the crap out of it when I competed, like really making that crowd applaud and get behind you and, and even talked about it because it was going to drive the rest of the competitors nuts, not knowing what was exactly happening and why you're getting such a loud applause. So you guys did get to see the other competitors and, and that horse bombed out completely. Guy, I mean, sorry, I shouldn't say guy, Pat's horse went seamlessly. And if it was an individual competition, he was the leader. But because Craig did, um, you know, poorly on his colt, that it took him out of the race and it took Team America out of the race. And once you two had actually completed and the points got tallied, you were more, you won by more than the actual bonus points. So assuming that you and Guy could have actually done the same on each on your own horses as you did with each other's horses, you guys would have won anyway. Did, did you actually realize that at the time? I didn't, no. I actually, I, I didn't know that. You, am I the first one to bring this up to you? <laughs> yeah, actually you are. We did the numbers in the booth. We were doing the numbers as they were scoring them and, and we had that all written down. That's how we knew it. Now talking about in the booth, we had us and a huge entourage from Australia and even we'd already had some American friends, including like Josh Lyons and his family, which um, we're not probably going to get a chance to talk too much about, but they're going to come up in, in coming episodes. And eventually I'm hoping we get Josh Lyons on the podcast. He's, he's such a good friend of both of ours and a great human being, but, but we just, we were just cheering and ecstatic and going crazy more than probably the rest of the crowd combined when they announced Team Australia. And if you remember, you guys did that victory lap and I like come running down from the bleachers like some crazy fan and I'm like waving to you and then you stopped and I hopped on your horse and we did that victory lap together. You remember that? Yeah. Oh, there is photos oh, yeah, of that. Mate, that, was, that was legit. Yeah, that was legit. I'm glad you said that. That is, I could have put that better myself. That was legit. That was le- I was as excited for you as I would have been for me, if not more. Like I was just like, I was ecstatic. Like I couldn't believe it. You know, it was like, it was the complete Australian story. The underdogs coming into the final, come out triumphant on American soil against American competition. And I, we jumped on the back of old Apollo there and we took a victory lap together. I mean, it, it probably, to be honest, it doesn't probably paint the best picture. Like we're going to put a photo up if I can find the photo. It looks like we're double dinking <laughs> like a sweet little couple. But, but we didn't let that bother us. Well, it certainly didn't bother me being on the back, James. And, uh, and hopefully yeah. it didn't bother you having my 
my arm wrapped around your waist doing a victory lap because we kept that party rolling. You know, that after party, and again, this is Frank the Tank, or better known as Frank Taylor from Taylor Made. You have to do these after parties, folks, where the Road to the Horse crew get together and all the competitors come together and some sponsors come together and they have a designated venue and you go there and, you know, be social. And we did that, but but we wanted to go out and we we're in Nashville. We're not far from Nashville. And this is one of my best memories ever, right? Not just Road to the Horse, not 2012, not America. This is one of my best memories of America and of my life where Frank decides to get a party bus organized and he, and he doesn't <laughs> rush us. He doesn't say, all right, boys, you got to get out of here. He just, he stays at the front of the venue and he stays at the bar and this party bus is waiting in the car park full of liquor, all sorts of alcohol. It's got, it's a huge bus. It's got the dance pole in there. It's got the strobe lights. It's got the, you know, disco ball. I mean, it is, I just hadn't seen anything like it. And Frank's got that thing on idle and he's, it's all on his bill. He's paying for the whole damn thing. And when we finish, we couldn't get out of there quick enough. And we, we must've looked like effing rock stars because we walk out of that venue and step straight onto this bus like Sears. And we take that thing to Nashville on a Sunday night, mind you, Sunday night. So it's not a crazy time to go out, but we take that thing out like it is Friday night and get absolutely loose as loose, including everybody that was with us. I mean, there was it was some fun times on that bus and then we went rolling and I think we tried to do like a pub crawl, but I think we only might have made it to two bars and in that second bar, they had some band playing and Frank tipped them like, ah, oh, it was like 400 bucks or something just to get you to get on stage and sing with them. You remember that? Oh, mate, absolutely. I, there was, um, as you said, that was, you know, you go and I'm not, I go back, you said something earlier, you know, like when you have those victory days that it works out and occasionally when that happens sometimes you don't ever get to like really embrace that moment like it's like man all the hard work and everything and everybody that toured me got me to this moment and it's all really paid off and I've, I've discussed this a bit with Brendan Brent like there's moments that you don't really get to embrace that that was by far one of those moments that we got to embrace it to enjoy you know the everything that had been going on um, and as, as you put it one of the, uh, the best I guess victory parties that um, that we ever did get to Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's it's one of those perfect storms that we were going to replicate it. That was the plan. And we've, we've fallen short on two occasions, both you and I, where we were going to replicate it um, at other at other points of, of us competing at Road to the Horse and things didn't work out our way. We won't talk about them now. We'll talk about them in other episodes. But that's all we we're trying to do. We were actually more excited probably about competing to replicate that night. But it, it's one of those beautiful moments that was uh, spontaneous. You know what I mean? Like we didn't go there with the feeling yeah. of organizing hey if you win frank's gonna get a party bus and we're gonna go out and yeah. we're gonna have a hell of it because i reckon that that just that just kills it because you put an expectation you go oh that should be good and then when it, if it's not good you think oh well that, that didn't work but it was just spontaneous where we were so damn excited we had that much adrenaline that much endorphins running through us that we didn't want to be cooped up in a formal you know sit down function you know at the end of the day and to be honest we've got to know road to the horse since then they bloody would have come out with us wouldn't they we should have we shouldn't have just ditched the party and made our own party we just thought they were too formal <laughs> didn't they we just thought they were yeah. too organized and 100%. if it would have been a different party if it was it was five or six years after but we just were like we've got to get yeah. out of here we've got to we got to we got to let loose we've got to get out of our shell Ooh. and uh and we went there and, and of course most of us was bloody 25 or 26 or under i can't i can't try to think but i'm not going to do the math i'm well, going to embarrass at that myself point, i think um i was the youngest person ever ever win it yes I, I, yeah i would say so absolutely and so we just we just cut loose and old frank i mean 
he couldn't have organized that thing any quicker and uh and god bless him for that yeah. and he's certainly a hero in my eyes i've got, I've got him on a whole whole pedestal uh, <laughs> and uh and he didn't let down one, one thing that um and this is kind of take, like backtracking a little bit but i feel like it's an important story to mention um at that event um i know that we're getting close to wrapping this up too but do you remember, um, I think it was day two, I, I was super sick and Frank organized, um, talking about Frank and everything that he did for us at that event. Remember he organized the, um, the medic from the uh, fire station across the road to run IVs into me? Well, I remember that happening, but I didn't know Frank, and I'm glad you brought it up. I'm actually disappointed that I had that off the timesheet, so kudos to you for bringing that up because that did change things a lot. Um, I remember you I remember you getting the, the fluids. I, I didn't know he organized it, but, but that did throw a spanner in the works because I did actually end up um, being able to be a part of that event because I sat in for you. They allowed me to be Guy's That's pen right. wrangler in the second round. You you stayed out yep. the back on the on the fluids. You were crook as a dog. Oh, I'm glad you brought that up. That makes this story even better because when we talk about you know the Australian story of the underdogs, this just makes it go to a whole new level of you you being unwell to the point that you didn't know if you're going to compete. And, and I remember Guy standing up in the meeting when we were having a meeting of what what are we going to do if, if Dan can't get going guys like uh well i don't want to have to you know scratch and be withdrawn so i'll i'll work dan's horse if that's acceptable and i was looking at him going excuse me <laughs> if anyone's going to work james's yep. horse it's going to be me pal i'm first yeah. reserve here that's exactly. why i was like you just step aside you son of a gun all right i'm stepping in that pen <laughs> and i thought and they they quickly rushed and got me a shirt you were team red that time and i got i've still yep. got that bloody shirt to be honest they gave me a competitor's shirt i chucked it on i uh i i I, I slipped in as his pen wrangler and if it wasn't for those fluids you wouldn't have bounced back and and almost to my disappointment I'm not going to lie there was a small part of me saying just just let me step in and uh, and I wanted you to get better I didn't want you to be like permanently ill by the way folks I'm not that bloody sick or dis- or disturbed but uh, just sick enough that I could have just stepped in there and had had a moment in the in the spotlight and, and started and well you'd already done a round I just would have just well, it, yeah it, it, it did almost that because when um, part of that that whole deal of running me over there to that uh, fire station and, and the MT over there giving me the, the fluid. They had like, I guess, I don't know how they doored them, but they were <laughs> proper cold. And when they started running those fluids into me, I went to like shaking like there was something wrong with me. And I remember Frank going, God damn, what are you, what are you guys giving him? What, what are you doing to him? And they're like, oh, I don't know. It must be a bit cold or something. And Frank's like, well, drag call some bitch out in the sun. <laughs> and uh, I remember Frank getting a tear and dragging me out in the sunshine, um, trying to warm me up after they, the started, f- after they hit me with those fluids. That might be the photo that um, I've seen of you in the sun because you had like a blanket on you and you came in, even when yeah. you competed, you were white. Like that's all I remember from it now that you've brought it back up is you're like just a different shade of white. You're like a ghost. You're so pale. And uh, and then you got by, you did the job that you needed to do. And um, and, and and obviously, you know, we all know the outcome. Moving on, boring swampy. That was the next decision, right? You win, you win road to the horse. For all the listeners out there, there's, there's, they've, they've up the paycheck. It's a hundred thousand now, and I don't know if they're going to stick with that. But for the last few years, it's a hundred grand. This these these years, it's ten thousand, and they don't pay. You know, and and rightly so. It's a competition, so everything, every single expense is up to the competitor. Even though they're selling ten thousand tickets, 
You've got to put your own hotels, fuel in the car, whatever. So you get 10,000 and they don't even give you 10,000 each. They give 10,000 to the team. You split it five grand each. And then they say, you know what would be really good is if you buy Swampy, it would look great, which he is 5,000. So there goes your total price packet. And how was that decision? I remember I wasn't keen on the horse. What was your feeling at the time? You know, it was a, it was one that I probably hadn't, didn't really have on my radar because I didn't know that we could necessarily like um, convince, you know, all of us as a team that it was the right financial thing to do in that moment. Like, you know, I thought he was a pretty cool colt. Um, he you tried, know, he tried to bloody kick your head you off. Know, yeah, but he, he kind of came around, you know, a bit at the end. Like, he grew, he grew on me. Like, I was like, oh, man, I've, I've picked Dink here, but um, in the beginning, for sure. He was um, rearing up on Guy McLean. <laughs> He'd never looked good during the whole thing. I think you got your rose-colored glasses off. Don't think of the swampy now. Yeah, think of- yeah you're right. You're right. Like, it was, um, it, it definitely, if you look at it from um, from that perspective, um, in that moment, it was probably didn't look like the best season. And I was certainly encouraged to do it. Um, I wish I could say that I had more hindsight into the situation, but I was certainly kind of encouraged to, um, you know, to do it. Um, so, yeah, it was one of those deals in the, in the moment. You're like, oh, yeah, I guess, I mean, you know, we'll, we'll do it. But it was one of those ones that we rushed out to, um, to try to seek to do. But, um, yeah, I guess uh, one of the best non-committal decisions that we ever did. Well, for me, and, and I could probably get a little bit of um, footage up because we are getting DDTV. We've got a bit of that on camera, making the decision and then handing over 5000 in cash. And, and it's just back then, like this is what people can't understand. Like that was a, just so much money. Like now it's, it's a much easier decision when you've got an established business. But when you're trying to establish a business, like we're just like, well, we've spent a lot of money to get here. Even five grand doesn't really cover it. And I certainly didn't agree on the horse, but I have to be the first to admit that uh, I've probably done a huge backflip and, and I'm glad you didn't listen to me if I was trying to persuade you not to buy him because he has now become one of the, the probably best representations of Double Down Horsemanship and our program and he's a I mean he's an icon of, of I guess the team is that how you see him? Yeah I mean that or you know like I think that you know certainly you know for, for me like he's become um, <coughs> I guess more recognisable than, than even myself um, in what we've done you know people know that horse he's um he's a you know a fan favorite and uh it, it's incredible like <coughs> excuse me um i think who, who says that I, i'm trying to remember who said it um you know there's been more good horses make great horsemen than great horsemen made you know good horses good horses and i i think that um you know certainly being the case with swampy i mean he was sort of that you know i guess ugly buckling as um as you know even even down to his name as steve mcdowell you know said to me um and you kind of remember the conversation about how he got his name was um, Steve come to me I think right after you know the, the choice and he, he said you know why'd you pick that ugly son of a gun he looks like something that just come up out of a swamp yeah which is it? of course the um the or, origin of his name and uh, and it has and so we won't keep you much longer because I, I, I know we've um we, this this podcast has dragged on a little bit um Swampy's going to come up well, there you go, folks. I think we've just lost Dan James. His phone has cut out. He did warn me it was getting very low on batteries. Just wrapping it up and uh, and he cut out. So that's going to be a wrap on our podcast. Hopefully, next podcast will be coming out a little sooner than this one has. And we'll have Kim Hagen back online as well as Dan James to get through the rest of 2012. Because like a lot of the years, it's another big one that's quite significant for the timeline of Double Down Horsemanship. If you like my daddy's podcast, please write reviews 
and subscribe. Share this podcast with your friends. My daddy pods had it all ten. Don't forget to share one your child. What that child mean? <laughs>